Join us as we unpack emerging trends and changes in digital transformation with the executives, entrepreneurs, and investors responsible for shaping the future of their industries. In these interviews, you can expect to hear candid conversations about the future of technology and the role it plays at some of the largest organizations in the world. Our hosts are members of the Kunai team, an agency that has been building software products for over 20 years. Today, your host will be Therun Basin. Hello, everybody. Kunai's podcast, FinTech is Eating the World. Therun Basin here, CEO of Kunai. When I have Brad Kelly with me, he's a managing director at Payment Services, a consultancy focused on the Australian payments market, a strategic advisor at SNP, an Australian built payment FinTech. And he's worked in industry across MasterCard, National Australia Bank, HSBC, JP Morgan, and ANZ Bank. Thank you for being on and uh, excited to have you here. Hi, Tyrone. It's good to be with you. Awesome. And so today we're going to be focusing on the Australian market, which Brad has incredibly deep expertise on, and also talking about some of the US market and the way things are going back and forth between the two countries. So to start and launch off, I wanted to talk about if you could give us a broad overview on the Australian banking and customer market and what you're seeing today and what that really means for the future. It's an interesting market down here, down here at the end of the train line in Australia. It's dominated by four big banks, and you can hear by my resume that I've worked for most of them. So that's National Australia Bank, ANZ, or ANZ, Westpac and Commonwealth Bank, and they have an 80% market share of just about everything. And they're sort of the, the four gorillas in the room. The Reserve Bank and the regulators will not let them merge. So you've got 80% sitting in a very concentrated place. And then everyone else is fighting out for the other 20%. So this is actually across mortgages. It's across credit cards. It's across, basically, you can apply this 80-20 Pareto principle to all of Australian banking. And they've successfully warded off just about every challenge that's ever come at them. And the ones that have, they buy them. And that's pretty much how it works. And in fact, they ganged up on Apple Pay. They didn't want Apple Pay in Australia, and the four of them tried to gang up and have Apple Pay try and cut some deal. And that's, we call that collusion. And they tried to get a carve out. And that didn't quite go as planned because Apple's pretty big too, as you know. Eventually, one of them broke away, cut a deal with Apple, and left the other three hanging. So there's all this sort of Machiavellian games that go on between the four of them. And to be honest, it's better than a soap opera. So that's why I've hung around for so long. So it's a a very concentrated market and it's dominated by four. So simply put, that's it. Yep. And it looks quite different from the US market as well. When we were speaking last, we were talking about debit card actually controlling a lot of the actual spend in Australia. And there's something weird with credit cards and Qantas as well. Yeah, so let's sort of delve into that. So the numbers came out for May. So all the payment nerds get very excited about this drop that comes from the Reserve Bank. And the Reserve Bank is very, very good at providing data to us. So they give us a nice little consolidated dashboard. And on that dashboard, you get the exact numbers of transactions. So you can see that we do nearly 800 million debit card transactions a month and around about 300 million credit transactions a month. So 1.1 billion transactions across 25 million people. So if you start doing the maths, we're a real card country, but we're a debit card country. And the market that's actually growing exponentially is debit. So debit's growing at around 30%, 33%. I think it's up over 2019. If you can't 
2020 as an outlier because of COVID. So this is where things get very interesting because what's actually going on is Australians are changing their spending habits. So if we take a step back, Australia has a couple of unique quirks besides killer spiders and snakes and and people called Hemsworth. What we've got is a very strong banking system, but we've got this indigenous debit payment network called EFTPOS, and it's been around for about 45 years. And it was set up by the two big supermarkets and the big four banks because Visa and MasterCard didn't really have a debit product and weren't being accepted. And it works brilliantly and it's cheap. It has a wholesale cost of two cents a transaction. And the idea was... When I was a little boy, your mum would go to the supermarket, she'd buy the groceries and you could get cash out. So you'd spend your $200 on groceries, you get 400 bucks cash out and you wouldn't have to go to a bank. This was good for the supermarket because it reduced their cash holdings, but they also earned money on those transactions. So that was very popular. If you fast forward to today, Visa and MasterCard have chipped away at that FPOS debit market very cleverly and increased the prices dramatically. So what Visa and MasterCard want is a bigger and bigger and bigger piece of this debit pie because that's what's growing. But the problem with it is the cost per transaction is very low. So you take that FPOS transaction at two cents, the equivalent Visa and MasterCard transaction is five cents. So you can see that there's an incentive for banks to use Visa and MasterCard, but for merchants, they like FPOS. Now, this FPOS only exists within Australia, but there are similar versions of this around the world. In India, there's Rupay, so the Reserve Bank of India, and they have a, a very strong debit network, and it's also a credit network, and they've cut deals with various other international players, and we can talk about that later. But there's another one in Canada called Interac. There's one in South Korea called BC Card. And you have one in the US, arguably, in Discover. These are vibrant, alive networks that are not technology companies like Visa and MasterCard. So that's the sort of landscape, and you picked up on that well. The other point to make on credit cards is that the actual credit card volume is increasing, but not as much. So we are spending more money on fewer credit cards, and we are not revolving balances. So to throw some more statistics at you, the average revolving balance for an Aussie is $1,000. Your average revolving balance in the US is $10,000. So can you pay your bill, please? Because it's costing you a lot of money. The reason why it's so low, this is a generational shift. The reason it's so low is there's a number of reasons. Australian credit laws are a lot tougher. The banks can't give away credit like as easily as they can in the US. And this has created the opening for buy now, pay later to come through. And that's what we're seeing here. And buy now, pay later to go back to, go back to your, you know, your Hemsworth conversation. This is, <laughs> this is the Thor of They're everywhere. Payments. They're everywhere in Australia. The Thor of payments. And Afterpay, it was a huge success in Australia. And I think if you could go into that a little bit, because I think it ran on debit card rails, if I recall our last conversation. So you're talking about volumes, but nominal margins before they shipped to the US and there's been real success here too. Yeah, let's not get too carried away with Afterpay. I mean, look, it's a great brand. They've done very well, but it's losing money hand over fist. It's just a cash incinerator. The reality is, if you look at our 1.2 billion, 1.1 billion card transactions a month, Afterpay, how many are they doing? Well, we don't know because they won't really tell us, but is it a million? Is it 2 million? Whatever it is, it's a tiny, tiny fraction of the entire 
payments market. I think we need to put perspective around this because Aussies are out there buying all these things, but the notion that we are shifting all of our spend to Afterpay is complete folly. Now, Afterpay does have a 67% market share of buy now, pay later, but buy now, pay later can only play in certain market verticals. So you can't put your groceries on it. So that's $1 in every 10 is groceries. So that's gone. You can't put various bills on it. There's, I mean, so you can't put taxi fares, you can't put McDonald's, you can't put petrol, right? So once you start stripping out what's left and then you do the demographic of what an afterpay customer is, which is a 29-year-old woman who earns $50,000 a year and spends on average $100 US a transaction, we are now shrinking, 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 shrinking. The other thing is that with afterpay, it's a primarily... It started off as an e-commerce play in Australia, and now they've had to shift to bricks and mortar. Their strategy in the US has to be the other way around because Amazon has a 57, I think it is, percent market share of e-commerce. So you can't put afterpay into Amazon. So they're going to have to play elsewhere, and that is the sort of leftover e-com merchants or what they're now calling affiliate revenue. So that's all they're left with, and bricks and mortar. But to do bricks and mortar, you've got to have some special tech, and that's what we'll talk about with Marketo. Yeah, no. And just to add on there, Affirm, uh, the US-launched BNPL provider, has partnered with Shopify, and they've created ShopPay. So outside of Amazon, you have Shopify and ShopPay. And so in terms of like the e-commerce platforms, those are the two big ones in the US where a lot of it has already been taken up, to your point as well. Yeah, and look, the other thing for Afterpay to remember is uh, Capital One cut them off as far as the ability to load Capital One cards on as a funding source to Afterpay. So Afterpay then went and cut a deal with American Express as a defensive strategy. So in Australia, you can now pay your Afterpay bill with Amex. That's what I do. Now, I'm not sure who's making money in this transaction because if I buy, I bought some sheets the other day, I got 40% off. 5% 5% fee to Afterpay, then Amex pays Afterpay, and then I get a bonus frequent flyer hit from Qantas. We're running on fumes. So I think this is the challenge. It's like, where do we go to from here? Yeah. And there's a few new people in the space as well. I know City just launched BNPL in Australia from you know a news release you sent me. And then just today, Apple is internally looking at BNPL in the United States. And curious to your thoughts on both of those. Curious to run that you chose Bastille Day to do this podcast <laughs> because everyone's decided to launch everything today because they think they, they knew we were talking. Okay, so let's take these one by one. Citibank have announced that they're getting into the buy now, pay later space with a virtual MasterCard. In my view, what's happening is there are two models of buy now, pay later which are emerging. One of them is this virtual card So the Citibank model, for instance, which is a virtual card in a wallet and it runs on MasterCard rails. So what that means is it just behaves like a standard card at the point of sale. There's nothing tricky necessarily about it. The other model is the, say, legacy afterpay model where they have individual relationships with each merchant and need to maintain an average merchant fee of around 4 5 or 6%. The only way you can do that is to have the tricky technology with a virtual zero balance card that's powered by Marketa, okay? So that becomes then a real serious technology play because you separate 
the buy now, pay later transaction from the actual authorization at the point of sale, right? So that's one model. And then there's the Citibank model, which is coming out. Commonwealth Bank are going to do that as well. And I'm sure they won't be the last. So one is a pure interchange play. The other thing that these, say the Commonwealth Bank version will do, that will be a debit card challenger. So they will go after debit card customers. So they want to flip all those cheap transactions out of the debit interchange, which is only five cents, into 80 basis points interchange. That's their game. Afterpay got their other game. So my view is those are the two models. Let's see who wins. And then we've got PayPal to talk about as well. Okay. And I think, and just to review that real quick, so Marketa launches a virtual card platform with just-in-time funding to fund this virtual card that enables them to get around regulation and charge a higher yeah. interchange in Australia, right? Yeah, it's really impressive. So just quickly, what happens is from a customer's point of view, they have a, an afterpay card in their Apple wallet. They go to an afterpay merchant at the point of sale of bricks and mortar. They make the transaction and all the tricky stuff happens in the background. So that card has no balance. The card then asks Afterpay, can you fund this? Afterpay does a look at you and go, yeah, yeah, Tarun's got enough money. Quickly funds it. The transaction is authorized. That goes on. But that just-in-time funding that sits at the back actually triggers the transaction between the merchant and Afterpay. So Afterpay then net out the five or six or whatever percent it is at the back end. And at the front end, they've maintained the rules and regulations around interchange. Now, that's especially important in Australia because our interchange regulations are so tight and so hard that there's really no interchange for them to play with on a prepaid card. It's practically zero. So they've got to make their money elsewhere. Yeah. And they'll do the in the US, they'll not only get the interchange clip, but they'll also get the other clip at the back end as well. So it's a double whammy. It's clever yeah. stuff. It is, it is. And you mentioned PayPal. And PayPal, I'm not sure if it's in the US or globally, but they actually lower transaction costs for pass-through cards like MasterCard and Visa Rails, but for their own proprietary products, they actually increased costs in the US. That was just a few weeks ago. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, curious what's happening in Australia with PayPal. And my belief of them is, they are another gorilla in the room when it comes to fintech. Yeah, look, I mean, again, highly concentrated market. So 25 million Aussies, 9 million PayPal accounts. Wow. Go figure. So that gives you an idea of the size of the market for PayPal. That's men, women, children, babies, the whole lot, 25 million Aussies. I think the thing to keep in mind with PayPal is the PayPal checkout is available at 50% of Australia's online merchants already. So all they have to do is throw the switch on for paying for, and they're done. So they're quoting in today's Australian Financial Review, they launched today on Bastille Day, which is the perfect day to do it, the beginning of the revolution, if you like. So what they'll do is they'll maintain a very low merchant service of about two, two and a bit percent, I think they're quoting. Afterpay are not going to be able to handle that because their average is around about four and a half with a cap at about six, so they're not regulated. I think this is a battle royale because the other problem with buy now, pay later is there's no loyalty from a customer perspective. So Macquarie Bank recently put out a report to say that the two flaws in the buy now, pay later model is one, it's easily replicated, and two, there's no customer loyalty. So I can tell you from a 30-year banking career that if you give a merchant a 6% merchant fee or a 2.3% merchant fee, 
they'll take the 2.3 and that's what's going to happen. So Afterpay are busily trying to shore up their customer base and they're telling everyone that their customers love them and their merchants love them. I'm not sure love is going to be enough to hold PayPal at bay, but I've been wrong before. Let's see what happens. So that's one to consider today. What do you think about a little bit of a, something within the US as a firm is thinking about launching tangential financial products like accounts? So they have BNPL and other, going into other banking services. Do you think that's a path to success for them? I think they have to. I mean, they've only really got one customer, and that's Peloton. And Peloton's launching here. Well, they better launch quick because we're locked down, so I need to get some exercise real quick. And, in fact, Peloton are opening their store at the foot of the Apple head office in Martin Place in Sydney. So I think they know their market. Look, this is the way that Afterpay is going in Australia. So, look, Afterpay is just never going to make any money. It can't. It just, it won't. The threat is millennial customers and their portability. And this is why the Commonwealth Bank is doing what it's doing, because it's got the most millennial customers of all the four banks that I mentioned earlier. So in recent times, when you went to an Australian primary school, when you were a little kid, the local Commonwealth Bank manager would come along and open a bank account for you and give you a little money box. And that was the gateway drug for kids to start banking with the Commonwealth Bank. Now, that program has since ceased for obvious reasons, but that gives you an idea of the base of the Commonwealth Bank. And once people are in a bank, they don't move. So Commonwealth Bank is under a degree of threat that if Afterpay does what you're saying that a firm will do, and Afterpay are doing this, so they're in a joint venture with 10X or 1010 Technologies, I forget how they're pronounced, and Westpac to create a banking product, and that's going to be aimed at millennial women. So again, very specific, they know their market. Yeah, that's exactly what they have to do because unless you can sell these customers another product, you're going to burn some more cash. The other thing they're doing to run is they're just getting bigger and bigger. So they're just buying everything. So Zip has bought QuadPay in the US. They'll buy anything that they can get their hands on. And what you see is this massive balloon At a certain point, it's either going to pop or they're going to have to find a way to profitability. Meanwhile, people are throwing money at them. We'll see. Hey there. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Kunai Podcast. Kunai Concepts designs and develops unique customer experiences that unite digital products with fintech for the world's top companies. We partner with our clients from start to finish to ensure that their product development efforts are always high velocity and customer aligned. This is why Fortune 500 companies, all four payment networks, five of the 10 top banks, and startups trust Kunai. And now, back to the episode. As we think about porting over Western tastes, when we last discussed, we were talking about Starbucks, Dunkin', how those are some of the biggest digital wallets or the biggest digital wallets in the US. Starbucks tried to launch in Australia, it didn't work. Porting over Western tastes, whether it's from coffee to fintech. Where does the Australian market sit when it comes to this? And we kind of think of ourselves as the same, but in fact, we're we're very different when it comes to what people want and need as well. Yeah. We talk of the special relationship, or is that the UK? I mean, I think we like to think we're like you, but we're not. So you touched on Qantas. So let's talk about Qantas for a minute. It's very important. Qantas is Australia's national carrier. You know that. You've seen the ads. It's the flying kangaroo. You know, we're incredibly loyal to that brand. It's an amazing brand. It's 100 and, or, no, 75 years this year. 
$3.50 in every $10 spent on a credit card in Australia is linked directly to Qantas. Qantas has 13 million frequent flyers out of a population, again, of 25 million. So this gives you an idea of you can't compare Australia with the US in some respects. You can in others. So Qantas is the perfect example. Let's just quickly talk about that. The idea that credit cards are dying is is complete nonsense because when you've got frequent flyers spending like drunks at a casino, because that's what they do, and $3.50 in every 10 is going through a Qantas direct points earned card, then Qantas becomes a very serious player in the financial services market in Australia. Every Australian bank issues a Qantas-linked card. So Qantas will not allow you to pick and choose which airline. So the way it works in Australia is rewards are Qantas and everybody else. So you've got Singapore Airlines, Virgin, and a few others in the other pot, and then there's Qantas take your pick. There's only three products in market that will allow you to steer to different products. One of them is Diners Club Business Card, and there is an American Express Platinum Charge Card. That's it. If you want to pay for it, you can do it, but that's the only way. So that's the level of concentration. That has to be considered when you're doing credit card marketing because typically those customers don't revolve a balance. So it's very hard to make money out of them when you're paying your interchange, which is capped at 80 basis points to Qantas for the points, You've got to charge very high annual fees because you've got to get revenue somehow. So, for instance, your annual fees are much lower than ours. We have three credit card products with no annual fee, maybe four. The average rewards credit cards are around about 300 bucks a year. An Amex Platinum charge card is 1,500 Aussie dollars a year and a Platinum business charge card is 1,800 dollars a year. So this is what's going on as far as what happens when you fiddle around with interchange and whatever, you've got to get ancillary fees. So that's the Qantas sort of picture. So let me touch on some of the things that work and some of the things that don't. So Starbucks is a really good example. And I initially, when Apple launched Apple Pay in Australia seven years ago, I drew the parallel between Starbucks and Apple Pay being just a complete lift and shift from one market to another. Now, there's a very famous, very clever video on YouTube that I particularly like because it's a case study from the University of New South Wales master's program, which delves into why Starbucks failed. And there are several different reasons, but bottom line, it comes down to it wasn't fit for the market. We are not a to-go or takeaway market. We have a long history of Italian and Turkish immigrants who brought espresso to Australia in the 1950s after the war. We have a very different palate. So you can't sell us a five million ounce or how, I don't know, I only speak metric, Frappuccino. you know, a half a litre of iced coffee with whipped cream and sugar stuff. We're just not going to buy it. So Starbucks came in with all that. And then we said no, and then they've had to retreat. Now, they've changed their tune. They've actually come back and they go to tourist areas instead. So when you go to Starbucks in Sydney, there's about five, I think, or four in Sydney. It's full of American tourists. So they've worked out their market. No offence. But what does work, McDonald's works here. McDonald's Australia is incredibly successful. But our gift to you as Australians is McCafe. That's an Australian invention. You give us the Big Mac, thank you very much. 
So <laughs> McDonald's were able to localize their menu and localize some of the offerings. And they do this in every market. It's very clever. You can see the different menus in different parts of the world. I bring this up because digital wallets were assumed to be the same. So when Apple Pay launched, it was just a credit card replacement or card replacement. I mean, who wants to replace a $2 card with a $2,000 phone? It's pointless. The other thing to consider is, unlike America, Australia is a 100% contactless card market. So we've been fully contactless, fully EMV compliant for about eight, almost 10 years. That means that every single card is contactless, debit or credit. Even my old Diners Club card is contactless. That means that every terminal can take Apple Pay. We don't need to have a special Apple Pay thing like you guys do. So as soon as you roll out Apple Pay, it's available at every single point of sale terminal in every merchant, full stop, end of story. That is a problem because it's not special. Again, same as Starbucks, it wasn't special. So when it comes to digital wallets, the real value in Apple Pay is yet to be fully realized. The real value is in the stuff that Marketa is doing and that just-in-time funded and instant card issuing and that sort of thing. That's the real value. And when you do an Apple Pay transaction in an e-commerce environment, it is superb and it is almost 100% unable to be challenged as far as a chargeback. So it reduces fraud. It's a very elegant, very slick solution. That's how Apple Pay needs to behave in Australia. So these are some of the differences. But of interest, I think these three wallets. So the three most successful wallets in the US are Dunkin' Donuts, Starbucks, and Apple Pay. And Apple Pay was the laggard for a while. I believe it's number one now. But the reason why it was Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts was because, A, you've got some culinary challenges. <laughs> I think that's the first thing, although sometimes it's just got to be Dunkin'. But the second thing is that those wallets offered more than just a payment. They offered mobile order ahead, rewards, and payment. And when you put those three things together, customers will use your wallet. If all you're doing is picking up your phone and replacing a piece of plastic with a $2,000 or $1,000 phone, that's achieving nothing. So this is where there's got to be more incentive and more value. And in Australia, it's coming through technology. It's coming through Marketa. It's coming through some of the really cool stuff that's happening with these um, buy now, pay later cards. That's really interesting. And I like that view. And it's some of the same questions I'm asking all the neo banks that are launching in the US today. While hugely successful for a certain demographic, what's their focus? Is it going to really be community driven or do they have something that's actually different and special? And I'm excited for them, but at the same time, that's the big part. So we're talking about Marketa, Apple, debit, credit. The big elephant in the room when you're talking about Australia is interchange regulation. And want your quick take on, is it a success or a failure? That depends on which side of the equation you sit on. Look, to give your listeners a, a quick guide, and this is real payment nerd stuff, the wholesale weighted average interchange needs to be 50 basis points. The cap is 80 basis points on credit. On debit, it's 12, I think, and five, I forget. So forgive me for that. But that gives you an idea of what we're playing with. So it's not much. That means that a merchant will typically pay a bank around about 1.2%. 
that merchant can also surcharge. So part of the interchange regulations were to remove the no surcharge rule, which you still have in the US. And the Reserve Bank has clamped down on this a couple of times already. The Reserve Bank is on the record of saying it wants a zero interchange environment, to which MasterCard responded, we'll pack up our bags and go home if you do that. To a degree, it's been successful, but it's unsuccessful if you are a frequent flyer because the amount of points that you can earn is diminished. So what happens now is Qantas front end the deals to sign you up. So you can get 150,000 Qantas frequent flyer points for taking on a new card. We are probably more generous than the US like that. However, your actual points earn, the average Aussie spends about 25 grand a year on their card they're not going to get to the end of the runway with that many points. So I think the idea is that the interchange regulations have achieved some things but destroyed others. There's been no real new products launched in the last decade. There's been no new entrants to market. There's no issuers. Citibank are selling their retail business in Australia and other markets. I mean, it's it makes money, but it, even after, I think they've been here 20-something years They're the fifth biggest issuer and they've only got 11% market share and they've got a big white label business. So it is a tough way to make a living. It's a bit of a perfect storm, to be honest with you, Tarun, because not only have you got this very small pot of interchange to play with, customers aren't prepared to pay high interest rates to revolve. You're dealing with a customer who spends 20 grand a year. You can make a maximum of 80 basis points. They're going to revolve a thousand bucks at average of 16%, 17%. They want everything for free and they pay their bills on time. You can't make money off that customer. So this is the challenge. This is why we're seeing buy now, pay later coming out of the banks and we're seeing various other things because they need to shuffle this around a bit to try and make some money. Not that we should feel sorry for them. They make money elsewhere. But if you're a card product manager, you're pouring over spreadsheets every day saying, where can I cut some costs and where can I make some money? Yeah, even in the U.S., the best APR you're going to get on a credit card product is about 19%, and your average is 16 so that just shows how limited the revenue potential is. Yeah, and also there is also a cap. So this is the other thing where buy now, pay later, and credit cards are not playing on an even playing field. If you are a bank and you're issuing a credit card, not only is there an arduous process of checking that the customer can afford the credit. So for instance, one of the assessment criteria is the customer has to be able to pay that entire bill back in three years in full. So that's the first clip. You can't charge any more than 25.99%, second clip. Third, and it goes on and on and on. So the regulations for issuing a card are tight. My bank can't send me an offer for a new card. They can't send me an offer for a limit increase. They can't do anything. So once I get that card, that's it. And I have to be able to cancel that card online with no questions asked. Done. So if you're an issuer, you're in a very, very tight position trying to get that customer sticky because they can run off. If they're frequent flyers like me, you can sign up for all the sign-on bonuses. To give you an example, during the last 12 months, Australia's borders have been closed and Qantas hasn't done any commercial international flights, really. They've done repatriation flights. The average frequent flyer for Qantas earned 160,000 points by sitting at home. So two-thirds of their points are earned by not flying. So that is a, a separate animal altogether, but that's the one, if you're a card issuer, you've got to concentrate on. These are your big spenders. These are people who are very savvy, but you're going to struggle to make money out of them. And they want they want lounge passes, insurance, 
They want everything that you can throw at them and they don't want to pay for it. And they think they're valuable and they're not. <laughs> in the US, we have, I guess, a stereotype of spending beyond our means. And it seems in Australia, that's quite the opposite is true. It's savers. And because credit is limited, you're more focused on spending within your means. And that's the way it's been structured as a regulation environment as well, perhaps. Yeah. And enter buy now, pay later. So buy now, pay later comes in because it's not credit according to them. So as not credit, they are not governed by the same legislation. So for instance, I have an afterpay account. I'm out of the closet. I'm an afterpay customer and I'm doing it for market research. That's what I'll tell everyone. But I sign up for afterpay. I get 500 bucks credit straight away. No questions asked, no credit check, no nothing. They get my mobile phone and my email address, 500 bucks. Then I start spending. Those fortnightly payments are coming out of my Amex card automatically. So I'm not paying late fees. And I looked the other day, I'm, I'm up to a $1,500 limit. It's not a credit limit. It's a limit. I'm going to hit the 2000 mark, right? I'll get 2000 bucks worth of credit. There's been no entry on my credit file. No one else knows that I've got this. And here lies the problem. Buy now, pay later doesn't report like a credit card. So banks see on you. So you go to, for, let's say you go for a mortgage. The average mortgage in Australia is about half a million US dollars. The average house in Australia costs around about 750,000 US dollars. It's not a cheap place to live. So when the bank does your credit assessment, it looks at your bank statement and says, what are all these afterpay zip thing? What's all this? Because they have no record on your credit file that you've done anything. So they look at that and put black marks next to them because they actually don't know how much you've got out the door to a buy now, pay later scheme. No idea. So whilst it all sounds very good, it's causing problems upstream because banks being the conservative, highly regulated, highly governed creatures that they are, have to treat these things as doomsday scenarios. So this is where we're starting to get into a grey area. And I think the real risk for Afterpay and, and their cohorts is the risk of regulation. Do you think banks in Australia will limit payments on BNPL like Capital One is done in the US? No. So if you look at you take Afterpay, around about 80% of their book is funded by debit. So that's not going to be a problem because we have Visa, debit, MasterCard, debit, and FPOS. So we've got three debit rails. I don't think that's a challenge. I think if the banks did that, all hell would break loose. The Reserve Bank would get very upset and so would some of the other governing bodies. So they wouldn't do that. What they're more likely to do is go after them, which is what the Commonwealth Bank is about to do which is they're going to launch a virtual MasterCard into the Apple wallet that'll have an 80 basis points interchange on it, not the five cent debit. And what they'll do with that product, and it's quite clever. So every transaction up to $100 will just go straight through as a debit transaction. Any transaction over $100 will automatically be chopped up into four two fortnightly or two weekly payments automatically. You'll get $1,000 credit. Through open banking, they will have access to all of your other data. So they've just become an open banking data recipient. The one criteria is that your salary is paid into the bank account. So Commonwealth Bank now has all your data, your salary, and they can do all of this on the fly. And then they'll flip all of the debit customers to this buy now, pay later thing. Keep in mind, your average debit transaction is 42 bucks. So they're just going to sail through as normal, anything over 100 chopped into four, sits off the back of a $1,000 credit facility. Now, the problem for Afterpay is 
that will just appear as a standard credit card transaction at a merchant. Now, the merchant can surcharge for that, but they can't surcharge for afterpay. So what's the merchant going to do? So you buy a $100 pair of jeans. The afterpay transaction is going to cost that merchant five bucks. Yeah. The Commonwealth Bank virtual MasterCard will cost that merchant $1.20. If I stick it on my FPOS card, it will cost him 20 cents. He can surcharge me 20. He can surcharge me $1.20, but he can't surge me five bucks. What's he going to do? And you can answer that. So I think this is where it's going to play out. It's going to play out in merchant land. So with our market being slightly different, a bit more regulated, the no surcharge rule, it's been a free-for-all for the buy now, pay laters. And I think there's going to be some headwinds on Bastille Day. And you've chosen a very wise day to have this conversation, I think. Yeah, it's been a great conversation. And thank you so much for joining us. I think we'll have to do part two in a few months to see how things were post-Bastille Day and all the things that shake out with BNPL and these new schemes running around them. It's been a, a pleasure to talk to you, Tyron, and I look forward to doing part two whenever you're ready. Sounds great. Thanks, Brad. Thank you, mate.